Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Well, hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. Wonderful to be with you for another episode of Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. Uh, Today is a very important episode because on Tuesday, Parliament will be returning. Uh, It'll be the first sitting day of the 47th Parliament. And as Tony and I discussed in our last uh, podcast episode, uh, in all likelihood, it will be a very active Labor government with ambitions on emissions reduction, on the voice to parliament, on education, on free speech, on many issues of our economy and culture. And what I wanted to talk with you today, uh, Tony, about is the lessons that you have drawn uh, as opposition leader in your time in politics. You were, I think, the most successful opposition leader uh, in recent decades. Uh, You were incredibly successful in getting Labor to a draw in 2010 and then winning in a landslide in 2013 where you achieved a 46% primary vote. Uh, that vote is now down to 36%, having dropped 10 percentage points since the 2013 election. So the first question I wanted to ask you, Tony, is at a general level, what are the main ingredients that makes a successful opposition leader and a successful opposition? Thanks, Dan. And you're right. Uh, we were expected to do very badly in the 2010 election. Um, It was thought that I would be doing as much as I could just to save a bit of the furniture because at the end of 2009 when I became the leader, uh, Kevin Rudd was still rampant in the polls. Uh, Everyone thought that his emissions trading scheme was a no-brainer and uh, anyone who dared to question an emissions trading scheme Uh, was virtually committing political suicide because how dare anyone question the so-called science. So um, I did exactly that. Uh, I decided that uh, the job of the opposition was not to make weak compromises with a bad government, but it was to be a clear alternative. Uh, By that stage, I'd worked out that an emissions trading scheme would be, in effect, a great big new tax on everything. It would raise the price of everything, either directly or indirectly. And uh, it had occurred to me that as long as climate change was an economic issue, uh, the coalition had a very strong political case to make. And that's what I succeeded, uh, what I proceeded to do uh, throughout uh, 2010 in the lead up to the election uh, to make climate change an economic issue, not an environmental, uh, let alone a moral one, uh, to talk about the practicalities of policies to deal with climate change. Uh, Almost immediately, uh, Kevin Rudd's uh, political dominance started to slip. Uh, He faltered in the polls, wasn't doing disastrously, but he certainly wasn't as dominant as he had been. He then, uh, early in 2010, walked back from the emissions trading scheme, which by that stage had been rejected in the Senate. And shortly thereafter, uh, he was replaced by Julia Gillard, who led uh, the Labor Party into the 2010 election 
And you might remember at the 2010 election, I kept saying, as sure as night follows day, if Labor are re-elected, there will be a carbon tax, which led Julia Gillard to say, famously or notoriously as the case may be, one morning, there will be no carbon tax under the government I lead. Uh, she lost a lot of seats. I think it was eight seats, uh, net loss. Um, it was a hung parliament. Uh, the coalition, I think, had one more seat than Labor. Unfortunately, um, uh, the Green Independent, the Green, uh, and two country independents, former National Party MPs, sided with uh, with uh, with Labor, and Julia Gillard was able to remain precariously in office in a minority government. But part of the deal she'd done with the Greens was to implement uh, uh, what she described as a carbon tax, and that really set us up for our smashing victory in 2013. So, look, at the end of the day, Dan, the job of the opposition is to oppose, not necessarily to oppose everything because probably uh, 70 or 80% of the legislation that goes through the parliament (coughs) is relatively uncontentious. But where a government is proposing to do something which is against centre-right principles, liberal conservative values, Mm. uh, where uh, a government is proposing to do something that you genuinely believe is against the national interest, frankly, it's crazy not to oppose it. That was my view and I'd certainly recommend that attitude uh, to my former colleagues who are still in the parliament. Yeah, absolutely. A few things to unpack there. Thanks for that overview, Tony. The first question I wanted to ask following that is, the, and you alluded to this, is your opposition to the carbon tax was not popular, at least in elite circles at the time. It's proven to be hugely popular and, and the best evidence for that was the massive victory in 2013. But if you could take us a little bit behind the scenes um, when you first opposed the ETS, what were people telling you? I bet there was a lot of people saying, don't do this, it's already been decided, you're going to lose votes. What what were the challenges you faced? Well, you might remember that uh, back in 2007, the Howard government had toyed uh, with a, a form of um, emissions trading. Uh, in the end, it had rather tepidly endorsed an emissions trading scheme uh, based on a report by Peter Shergold, uh, with the important caveat that we wouldn't do it unless a large number of other countries had signed up because we didn't want to put our industries at a competitive disadvantage. So I suppose you might say that we played political footsie with it in, in 2007. Then, of course, uh, Uh, Kevin Rudd came in. The big issue at the 2007 election was not so much the ETS, it was whether we were going to uh, um, sign up to uh, the Kyoto Protocol uh, from memory and Kevin Rudd was adamant that we would and must. John Howard had had resisted signing up to that. So in the course of that term of parliament, uh, Labor became more and more committed. Uh, On the one hand, we wanted to take reasonable environmental action, but on the other hand, were extremely cautious uh, about an emissions trading scheme. And the more I thought of it, uh, the more it seemed to me that Barnaby Joyce was right. I think he was the first person to use the phrase, a great big new tax and everything. 
And uh, obviously, um, the job of the opposition is not to wave through contentious policy. The job of the opposition is to subject it to to scrutiny. Mm. Unfortunately, at the end of the 2009 parliamentary year, uh, the, the then opposition leadership got involved in very detailed discussions with the then government about the precise form of, uh, of an ETS. I can remember saying to uh, our then leader, Malcolm Turnbull, that by all means talk to the government as long as at the end we come out and oppose this thing. <laughs> it became apparent that uh, Malcolm's intention was to support it. Interestingly, um, he didn't get any thanks from the then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd for that. No. Uh, Kevin Rudd was taunting him constantly, even though uh, uh, basically uh, he and Turnbull were at one on this. So look, there was a there was obviously uh, a strand of coalition thinking mm. that thought uh, this is uh, inevitable. Um, uh, this is something that uh, um, everyone supports. Uh, we've got to go along with it. But, you know, uh, there are so many things that everyone supports until they don't. Yes. Uh, and the important thing is to think long and hard before you make common cause with your political opponents. Almost by definition, if your opponents are enthusiastically in favour of it and it's something big and all-encompassing, uh, you should think long and hard about it. I'm not saying that Labor's always wrong. And um, there were things that the Labor government did uh, um, to adjust welfare spending, for instance, in the right direction, which uh, we supported in opposition. Certainly there were lots of economic reforms that the Hawke government put in place, which uh, the Howard opposition quite uh, vigorously supported. But... Uh, but the job of an opposition fundamentally is to oppose not everything but everything which is contrary to its values and certainly everything that it judges is against the national interest. Did you at the time get much support from institutions outside of the Liberal Party for your position? I have in mind business groups, say Business Council of Australia or the Minerals Council, um, I know that at least later on they were very vigorously opposed to the carbon tax. I seem to recall at the time that they weren't. What was, what was your recollection? That's my recollection too, Dan. Uh, certainly uh, the general view of the commentariat when I emerged as leader was that the coalition had just made itself unelectable because uh, it was believed by um, elite, in inverted commas, opinion back then that – some kind of a price on carbon was inevitable. Now, um, the difficulty with trying to price carbon is that it's not like a market for milk uh, or a market for cars uh, or even a market for money. Mm. Uh, it's, it's trying to put a price on something which is uh, – um, you can't see it, you can't touch it. Uh, it's essentially an artificial price structure that you are imposing mm. on activity and that's why anything that attempts to impose a price on carbon, whatever you call it, 
is effectively a tax. It's something that government does, which is not inherent uh, in in it, it's 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 not it's carbon dioxide emissions are not something that have any inherent value. That's why pricing yes. them is inevitably a form of tax. Yeah, uh, that's a good way of putting it. I just want to build on the point about other institutional support because the reason I raise that is if we fast forward to now, we've got net zero policy, which is agreed by both sides of politics at the federal level pending any change of direction under Peter Dutton. Uh, the LNP in Queensland uh, a week or two ago put out a policy saying they support net zero. Here in Victoria, uh, the coalition opposition has released a policy saying they want to legislate a 50% cut by 2030, which makes Labor look uh, moderate with their 43% cut. It feels – and on top of that, you've got basically all the major institutions that are behind net zero and emissions cuts. Um, what what I'm getting out of what you're saying is that doesn't mean that you cannot change the future. You, you managed to almost single-handedly drive the debate in the absence of institutional support – do you think that the current situation, and let's take net zero as the example, the current situation with the institutional support for net zero and the hostility against those who do not support it is more severe and more uh, prominent than when you first opposed the carbon tax? In other words, is the challenge now more difficult than what you faced? I don't want to underestimate the scale of the challenge, but again, I would be very reluctant to say that uh, it's impossible to go against a contemporary consensus because uh, sometimes uh, common sense might demand that you do. Uh, I'm all in favour of reducing emissions uh, because in the end we have an obligation to rest lightly on the planet. Uh, the question is, what price are we prepared to pay uh, to reduce emissions and what other goods are we prepared to sacrifice in the quest to reduce emissions? And the basic problem is that in order to live, we need electricity. Mm. Uh, modern life is unimaginable, impossible without electricity 24-7, and yet the cheapest and most reliable forms of generating electricity are provided by fossil fuels, so it's emissions intensive. Now, the difficulty with saying that we are going to achieve net zero by a particular date is that we might end up putting our economy into a straitjacket and, in, and inflicting massive uh, costs and harms on jobs, on industries, and ultimately on millions of our citizens, particularly uh, the more vulnerable. So that's that's my difficulty with uh, setting a specific date mm. uh, for achieving net zero. I don't net zero. I don't have a problem with net zero as as a long term aspiration, but setting a specific date uh, and saying we will achieve it by this date, I think, is deeply problematic. Um, I also think that entrenching it in legislation is even more problematic because that will bind the hands of future governments and it will also allow the courts easier access uh, to a second guess at the behest of uh, uh, green lawfare activists, uh, at the behest of them, it will allow the courts to interfere with the ordinary activities of 
of, of, of business and government. Uh, we've already seen court cases that have imposed enormous delays uh, on, um, on developments of one sort or another. And I think the last thing we need is even more of that uh, in the years ahead. But I tell you, we sure will get it if there's a legislated target. We will. I just want to um, talk a bit more about that point on lawfare because the I'll give one example. At the moment, the, the Scarborough gas project, which is a massive go- gas project uh, offshore Western Australia, uh, we've calculated that there's enough gas in that project to be able to generate 500 years worth of uh, power supply for every single Western Australian household. So there's a serious amount of energy resources mm-hmm. in that gas basin. That is the subject. It's been approved, but it's now the subject of a legal challenge by the Australian Conservation Foundation. Importantly, they are being represented by the Environmental Defenders Office, who, as you know, get a portion of their funding from the government. About 20% of their funding comes from the government. I know that when you were in government, you made some attempts to be able to limit lawfare, firstly through the repeal of Section 487 of the Federal Environmental Law, which allows green groups to undertake this action, and secondly, through cutting the funding to environmental defenders' offices. Uh, can you give us a bit of an insight into the challenges you faced with that and um, what your insights would be for the future? That's uh, a good question, Dan. <laughs> well, just to add context, so Section 487, the repealer that I got through the House, but I believe it got stuck in the Senate and never got through, was that's, my that's recollection. M- that's my recollection as well. Yeah. Look, uh, a lot of things happen in politics because they seem like a good idea at the time. And that particular section of the EPBC Act was introduced by Robert Hill when he was the Environment Minister in the Howard Government. Uh, it was relatively early on in the life of the Howard Government and I think it was done as, if you like, a, an olive branch to the environmental movement to mm. boost the Howard Government's green credentials. But it's turned out to be a total Trojan horse uh, for all development uh, across the economy and it's going to get much, much worse, uh, especially if there is a legislated uh, emissions reduction target by a particular date. Uh, We're going to see an absolute uh, blizzard uh, of litigation by Mm. these environmental groups. I mean, what that section of the EPBC Act does is that changes the ordinary litigation rules. Normally, if I bring an action in a court, I've got to have standing. Yes. And to have standing, I have got to be personally directly impacted uh, by the action that I'm challenging in court. Under this section uh, of the environmental law, you do not need to have a direct interest in the development uh, concerned in order to bring a court case against it. So a green group in Carlton yeah. uh, can challenge uh, a coal mine in central Queensland. Um, a green group in Sydney could challenge uh, a gas development in Western Australia. Um, and and it's completely contrary uh, to the ordinary principles of law. And as is so often the case when rules that have stood the test of time are disturbed, there are a whole range of consequences uh, that we come deeply to regret and, mm. and, and this, is, this is one of them. So, so look, if, if we are going to allow uh, necessary economic developments to take place, 
without unconscionable delay, uh, this particular piece of legislation does need to be changed. And had the Abbott government had more time, uh, I certainly would have tried again and again to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I wanted to ask another question just on the on the net zero uh, policy because the only discussion there is around net zero and about how to get to net zero is on cutting emissions. Mm. But, of course, the key part of net zero is net. Mm-hmm. So theoretically you can get to net zero without actually cutting any emissions. You can just absorb more emissions. Indeed. And, and that was you had direct action. Exactly. With, that was the idea. Can Ex- you just – Exactly yeah. right, Dan. Um, and, and, look, I, this was – really Greg Hunt's idea and um, Greg Hunt was an extraordinarily effective minister. Uh, um, He and I didn't agree on everything and we probably came from different wings of the Liberal Party but but a very, very uh, smart, creative, decent and honourable man, Greg Hunt, a great loss to public life and I think he was certainly... uh, uh, really one of the absolutely outstanding ministers, perhaps the outstanding minister uh, of uh, of the recent government. Greg came up with the idea of direct action, <clears throat> an emissions reduction fund, whereby we would put aside a couple of billion dollars a year initially uh, to go to the market uh, and seek from the market uh, bids for action that would um, reduce emissions. And it might be... Um, uh, uh, to install uh, more efficient uh, uh, machinery, uh, it might be uh, to uh, to plant trees, mm. um, uh, to change farming practices uh, for more carbon sequestration, and so on. And the emissions reduction fund did secure very considerable reduction in emissions um, uh, through doing things that I thought were worth doing regardless of their impact on emissions. I mean, we do want uh, more efficient businesses uh, with lower energy costs. We do want more effective and efficient farms uh, that are actually more productive. And it was interesting. I can remember being told uh, uh, by Lynn Fox uh, as opposition leader that they had reduced their emissions by close to 30% by... uh, changing their lighting uh, in their warehouses and by changing their driver's uh, sort of standard operating procedures. Uh, uh, as a result, they used less electricity, uh, they used uh, less fuel and they had more natural light. So through a series of no-regrets measures, they were able to drastically reduce their emissions and I guess the Emissions Reduction Fund was a way of encouraging more enterprises to think along those terms. Uh, thanks, Tony. And I just want to ask you one last question. Um, in my view, there's a lot of accounting trickery that goes on with cutting emissions, mm-hmm. whether you know you can talk about Australia versus the rest of the world and uh, energy we use versus export and so forth. One of them, and this is a point that Professor, the great Professor Ian Plymer has made, is, well, if you look at, the totality of Australia's sequestration, we're actually already at net zero. So his argument is basically um, the UN's definition of net zero is only in relation to man-made uh, emissions and man-made sequestration. But if you take into account the massive carbon sinks throughout Australia, Australia is already um, 
is sequestering more carbon than we are emitting new carbon, which I think is a very important point. And I just wanted to ask either on that specific point or the broader sort of accounting trickery around this, what's your perspective on on that broader issue? Well, this is the fundamental problem when you're dealing with something which doesn't have an inherent value. Uh, I mean, we all know that either you do or you don't have the cup of coffee which is in front of me now. And um, uh, so so we can touch it, we can see it, uh, we, we gain an immediate uh, pleasure or benefit from it, uh, and so we can easily make rational decisions about, about it. Um, take for argument's sake uh, a forest, which at the moment uh, is uh, a net reduction to carbon. Yep. Uh, now... I could go to the government and say, well, I'm not going to cut down that forest, uh, please pay me. Yeah. But maybe I was never going to cut down that forest. So effectively I'm getting money for nothing. And uh, this is why these schemes can be so easily rorted. Now, my understanding uh, is that the Emissions Reduction Fund uh, in my time required you to do positive things that you weren't doing uh, to plant trees as opposed to refuse to cut down trees, uh, to change your farming practices as opposed to simply keep doing what you were doing and ask for more. Um, but but there is obviously uh, scope for sharp practice, uh, particularly if officials become, as it were, overzealous. Uh, and uh, there are certainly other countries which I think uh, have been uh, – pretty fraudulent in, in this, which is why um, I was always adamant that any carbon credits that we were going to uh, make use of had to be generated here, where at least we could be be confident that they were as fair income as these things can be. So, so look, it's, it's a, a very tricky area uh, where we can so easily be uh, bamboozled by flim-flam merchants uh, and and that's why we've got to be very careful. I mean, my my overarching fear is that in our rush to embrace renewable energy, we are going to find ourselves more and more in situations where we just can't keep the lights on, and uh, that would be a catastrophe for our country. Uh, but given that we've got two big coal-fired power stations closing down within the next three years on the East Coast and not being replaced by dispatchable power. I think that is the dread prospect that we currently face. Absolutely. Tony, thank you again for your time and your insights and analysis. Looking forward to our next discussion where I'm sure we'll be analysing and unpacking the activities of the first sitting week. So, Tony, thank you. Good on you, Dan. This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.